Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. They demand my alter ego, but I won't go. Because I On today's show, we have George Wood. George Wood uh, has a very interesting story. Uh, he, I guess, is the creator of the Timothy Initiative. Yes, I am. Uh, and uh, which, if you're not familiar with what the Timothy Initiative is, listen, and you will be by the end of the show. But before we go too far at all, I have to thank you from the bottom of my heart and everything for helping one of the best people I know, uh, Chris Bryant, who was uh, previously a guest on this show. Chris Bryant is a cousin of mine, just a beautiful soul, beautiful human being who had struggles with substance abuse and had a lot of uh, false starts and trying to get into recovery. And he, through trial and error, found his way to the Timothy Initiative. And he attributes, all, if not all, most of his successful recovery. And now he's like six, seven, eight, I don't even know where nine he's years. at, nine years sober. Uh, and just a, a, just a beautiful man, a good-hearted man. Uh, he's Christian. Uh, he loves music. He and I are concert uh, concert partners. I, I'm not sober. <laughs> I drink, so he I buy the tickets. He drives. I drink, and it's a it's a harmonious relationship. <laughs> but uh, Chris Bryan is one of my favorite people in this world, and the fact that you were able to do that for him, and just by extrapolation, the number of people that you've probably been able to do that yeah. for is just such a beautiful thing. So thank you. I'm sorry for the long intro, but. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, that's a lot. It's a, it's a lot to live up to. Um, it's funny because Chris is one of those people that you're right. He is such a beautiful soul. He's just such a great guy. I just sit back and get the applause for it. I'm like, okay, yeah, right. It actually, well, you allowed him to be who <laughs> I don't know if, if who he was meant to be or the best version of himself, but he's such a charismatic, mm -hmm. bright ray of light. Just you bring him into any room and you're automatically oh, yeah. having fun. You're automatically laughing, you're dancing, you're singing. And he's so earnest too. Like he's self-effacing and he's like, well, I'm the, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about, but, 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 but every, every situation is made better with Chris Bryant in the room. And so that wasn't always the case though. No, it, you know, it there was a period of time where it was probably quite the opposite. And, you know, his, his wife, who's my wife's cousin, you know, she's she's a saint as well. You know, she's had gone through a lot of difficulty between her brother who committed suicide and, you know, issues with Chris and all that other stuff. And so, uh, you know, I in the line of work that I do, someone told me recently, Chris Meyer, I'm going to try and take your advice and not talk so much about myself. I'm going to let the guest talk, but let me get through this one part. <laughs> um you know, as a criminal attorney and a family law attorney, I see where I, I see this where the stories don't have the happy mm -hmm. endings. And I, and I know you have that in your, in yours too, but you know, the, just the fact that there is the possibility of recovery, the possibility of turning your life around is heartening. And so, you know, the fact that you give that to so many people, um, is just pretty amazing. And, and you come to it from your own story, right? Yeah, absolutely. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. So yeah. where are you from originally? 
Oh, well, originally I was born in upstate New York, Syracuse area. Oh, um, I know it well. Yeah. Yeah. So Fayetteville, close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where yep. my, my aunt used to live up there. We used to go up there. Sorry, Chris Meyer. I'll stop talking about myself. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is the easiest podcast I've ever done. I, well, I just kind of sit back. Some people. He gets are, out of roll. Well, some people don't want to talk. <laughs> so I have to kind of like elicit. And oh, so you're with I'm, the wrong I'm, guy here. I, okay. Well, good. I'll shut up then. So <laughs> tell me about Syracuse. Uh, Syracuse. Okay. Syracuse is. Rainy, you know, a little bit gloomy at times <laughs> uh, and cold for a long period of uh, the year. So anyway, I uh, left Sy- Syracuse in about 93, came down to Tampa. Um, Tell me about your family. Like yeah. mom and dad together. Did you have siblings? Did, how, how did that? Well, yeah. So you brought up the Timothy Initiative and so much of the Timothy Initiative is birthed out of my own life and my own pain and struggles. And you know, I can say it like this. My life has been filled with a lot of really highs and really lows and more trauma and travesty than, you know, most people endure. And I, I endured that before I even left home. So first grade, my mother, my father left my mother for a younger woman. And obviously that's difficult. I was the fifth child out of uh, f- five children, but I was like 10 years in between me and my siblings. So I was like the mistake. And I was the one left at home. And when my father left, he took our, you know, my oldest brother, their firstborn with him. They moved down to to Florida. So my mother was obviously really broken up about that. But the, you know, the real problems and the real pain came a couple of years later when my oldest brother um, died on a construction site that my father was running. Was this the attorney? No. Okay. We're getting to that okay. one. So... Now, this was my, you know, my oldest brother, the first death in the family. And obviously the connection between my father leaving my mother for a younger woman, taking the firstborn with him, you can imagine what it did to my mother. Sure. And, uh, you know, the, my father never recovered from that, ended up going into drugs and and drinking and bad depression and, and needless to say, wasn't a great father. And, you know, for the next few years, you know, I was just kind of like the lost child that just was here on this earth, but kind of not planned for, not really somebody that could be taken care of by my parents. Right. So my childhood was real rough from that angle. But was this the, all still up in New York? Yeah. Well, my father moved down here and I would come down during the summer times. Okay. And, you know, I would come down from, you know, whatever, May to August and spend it with my summer, but he'd be... My father would be out drinking and doing whatever. At eight years old, I was driving the van home at night from the local bar because my dad couldn't. That type of scenario. We lived out in Odessa. Yeah. And back then, Odessa wasn't the rich, you know, the rich white people that it is today. It was a bunch of sticks. Yeah. You know, a bunch of sticks and lakes. Right. So, you know, that was kind of where I was first introduced to um, being alone. For extended periods of time, because my dad would be gone all the time, and I'd just be out on this, you know, this huge piece of property by myself. And I think it was in that time that I really started, you know, my mind started to get a little warped. And, you know, by the time I was in fifth, sixth grade, I'd already lost my virginity, tried drugs, you know, tried alcohol, and was on my way to my own form of debauchery. You know, I think uh, when I turned 13, um, my father's girlfriend, after a night of them being out drinking and doing drugs, you know, came into my room, um, and had sex with me. And for years, um, I didn't know how to really register what had just happened to me. Right. 
And the only way I could was to try to live out of that identity, that identity of somebody that just slept with his father's girlfriend at 13. Right. And uh, sex became something that I, I, you know, did as much as I could have because that's how I proved I was a man. And um, it was it was very much encouraged by my brother and my my father. And uh, little did I know what it was doing to me as a, as a man, as a person. Right. Setting my you know kind of the way I looked at women in in a way that was not not the way God intended it, and not the way really any any man should look at women. Um, by the time I left home at you know went into college and and did all of those types of things. Um, I was already, you know, on a lot of pain medication, a lot of drinking. Did you get into it by way of an injury or just seeking yep. out specifically? Back in those days, they didn't have all the, you know, the governance that they have now on medication. I blew my knee out playing football, had three surgeries, between two on my knee, one on my ankle. Then I ended up having one on my shoulder. And you can imagine pain medication back then, people, as much as you needed, here it is. Yeah. And, you know, I spent most of the 90s lost completely. Like, I don't remember them. Right. And, um, you know, it really wasn't until I had a nervous breakdown in 2000. Where, Did something trigger it or was it just the aggregate of everything that had been going you on? You know, it's interesting because I think, Please you know. Be careful with the pain on the phone. Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You're good. So, the, you know, the aggregate is probably a really good way to put it. Because just a, a, yeah, a, the, the culmination breaks type of situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I I came down to Florida in '93 and continued the drinking and and partying. I had a college education at this point. Where'd you go to school? I went to Syracuse. Okay. And my brother at the time was in Stetson Law School, and so we were just you know living our best lives, you know, partying and doing whatever and and thinking I was going to be successful, got married. And I think that eventually you can only be a practicing alcoholic drug addict for so long. Yeah. It's a very, not much longevity there. No. And I, I pushed the limits on that and uh, was doing really great running different restaurant chains. And eventually the wheels just started to fall off one by one and the pressure started to mount. It was right around when I was planning on having a child with my first wife and woke up one day and I couldn't move paralyzed and uh, ended up, you know, being diagnosed with a nervous breakdown, you know, panic attacks going through the whole cycle of, you know, antidepressants and everything like that. And still drinking, still trying to, you know, can, you know, self-medicate the best I could. And eventually, you know, my ex-wife had had enough, Yeah, which you know, I probably would have had enough much sooner. Oh, yeah. She, she gave it a good... <laughs> she gave it a good go. Yeah. She gave it a good go. At that point, I had, you know, an infant child or, you know, been about a year old and lost everything and, um, you know, kind of real, literally found myself homeless on the streets, you know, attempted suicide a bunch of times. When when was this? Was this 90s? 2000s? No, this is early 2000s. Okay. 2003, okay. 2004. How long were you on the streets? Well, you know, you always have the couch you can occasionally sure. stay on or the bur the bridge that you still yet to burn. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, on and off a year and a half. Do you, do you know when this is happening that you're at bottom or do you think there's further to go? Like, what is the self-awareness at that point? It's funny. In hindsight, I don't remember even knowing about 
anything to do with rehabs. Like now I, I know where they are and what to do. But back then I literally had no idea that like rehabs outside of famous people existed. I didn't right. know what a detox unit was. I didn't know these things per se. And so I wasn't thinking in terms of recovery or rock bottom. You're just waiting for the, your, your, I either die, up, yeah. either die or some miracle. And I end up continuing to be able to drink and party, but succeed. Yeah. And obviously that doesn't happen. Right. And so after, you know, multiple failed suicide attempts and the suicide attempts, were they, and again, I don't mean to yeah. tread in, in, in inappropriate territory, but you know, you hear about them and sometimes they're call for help. Sometimes they're like, no, I'm, yeah. I'm going for the, the end result here. Absolutely. Um, do, you know, mm-hmm. tell me about that, where, where your mind's at. Because, you know, I've I've had mental health issues uh, sure. myself and, you know, I've dealt with anxiety and all these other things. And the thought of suicide does, I think, cross everyone's mind. But there is kind of a, a spectrum where, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's normal for people to think about it. But then when you're really starting to take steps and furtherance thereof yeah. and kind of planning it, that's when... You know, so I think it would be helpful for the listeners to the extent you mm-hmm. can speak on it is when when do you know that you're kind of crossing a line, uh, <laughs> at least in retrospect? Can you pinpoint that or? Well, you know, and I'm sure we'll get to it in the podcast, but I started a new organization, Sober Truth Project, and a big part of that is suicide prevention. And it's birthed out of my own, right. my own attempts and then all the suicides that have been around me. Um, I can say this. When we hear about drug overdoses. And people that die from them, I have a, a strong desire to try to figure out how many of those were actually intentional. Right. Because often we don't see the suicide note or whatever. And so the rule, just an accidental overdose, but they're not actually accidental. And I believe if we could pinpoint that, we would be able to actually save more lives because right. there are signs to people that are going to take their own life, even though it may look like an overdose. Right. And so in my case, I, I believe, you know, 90% of them were legitimate attempts to to do it. And just by grace of God, by, it didn't go By through. grace of God and by the fact that I was so wasted that I couldn't pull it off because pretty much there was, there was years that went by that I, I was never not, not wasted. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, the falling, the final blow was, you know, the last time that I was in a psychiatric ward after a failed attempt and literally woke up like, I cannot believe I am still alive and not in a good way. I'm like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. Yeah. Why am I still here? And then I get released. They're like, well, we, you gotta leave here and I got nowhere to go. Right. And so I'm literally just walking down the street, nowhere to go. I'm Tried, failed many times to end this misery of mine. And so that's when I finally was like, you know what, God, you're either, I know you're real, but either kill me or do something different because I know you're not doing this for your own amusement. Mm-hmm. And about five minutes later, I got a phone call from a guy I'd met in a detox a year before where he said, hey, are you okay? Be- because <laughs> decidedly not okay because i just had this strong feeling from god that you needed help right now and, and felt like i needed to call you right and that was my come to jesus moment and i was like no i'm not okay come and get me and you know that's when i was taken to you know meet this old man that i call pops that uh literally saved my life led me to jesus and 
um, I was able to turn things around. It wasn't exactly smooth, but that was my, that was my like, okay, I don't want to escape this world. I want to do something different moment. Well, that's a, that's, that's an interesting point too. Uh, and, and something that I think some people get and other people don't get and whether it's drugs, it's food, it's sex, it's spending or what, whatever, whatever the, the medicine is that you're feeding yourself. It, very rarely, if ever, is it tomorrow I'm clean and sober and it just goes on from, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a bumpy, bumpy path for most people. Would, would you agree? Yeah, I would um, wholeheartedly agree. And for me, the, the path has been, it's still rough. It's still well, that's the easy. thing that scares me. Like, you know, I had alcoholism with my parents and, you know, I, I think about this with Chris and other people that I love, but I'm like, you know, the temptation, like, do you ever, you know, when you really, when you are, when you're so pot committed, you're six years in, seven years in, nine years in, 10 years in, you know, the fear of losing that 10 years, just that from an outside perspective scares the shit out of me, you know? Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because it was actually that fear that wouldn't let me get sober. Oh, for sure. Because I I'm would, just going to fail. So why even try? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you get a year in, you're like, oh my goodness, I see a year. I'm going to start over. Yeah. It's actually the opposite of what you just said that keeps me sober, where I finally came to the conclusion that even if I relapse, I don't lose all that time. I don't start over because everything I've learned during that time is still in me. It's still there. Right. And once I was able to finally grasp that, it's not about the time sober. That, that's irrelevant. It's about the transformation that is already in me and nobody can take that from me. Right. I mean, I could relapse and go get high for two years solid and it, yeah, then it's a start over. But if I was to leave here today and go have some drinks, I'm not starting over. So it's once we can grasp that whatever you gain in your sobriety, it's still there. It's right. not about being perfect. It's about the journey and understanding that the journey is there for all of us. And it's that that can that type of awareness that takes the pressure off of not screwing up today, because otherwise we focus only on man, the negative. Don't screw up, right? Don't screw up, right? So, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, it's something you said that was really important. You talked about the suicidal. You know, when do you know it's real? When do you know it's not? And for anybody listening, I want to say this: that I lived with suicidal ideations for thirty years of my life. I knew in my own head that I would die by my own hand. And that's the suicidal ideation that weighed in me was always like, you're going to kill yourself. Just deal with it. And so I finally just came to this agreement where like, all right, I will. And it won't be today. Suicidal ideations are different than like not actual suicide, suicidal attempts. So if a person is struggling with suicidal ideations out there, please get help. You're not crazy. You're not alone. A lot of people go through this. It will pass. And it's important to recognize that the help that we need is sometimes right in front of us. We just have to stop being afraid of the shame that can come from it. Well, you mentioned that uh, at that time or before that time, you weren't aware that rehabs were around. Mm -hmm. And I, I still think as as hard as the message is pushed, people still like wouldn't know if they were contemplating suicide, what to do or mm -hmm. or were struggling with, you know, addiction, who to call. You know, I, I work in I work in this world as a criminal attorney and most attorneys who do this are like, who are you sending people to right now? And maybe there's like one or two names that yeah. everybody uses. But 
it's probably far, far more breadth of services available. And, you know, it's a hard message to get out there and get across. I don't know why it is, but I guess it's just one of those things that people don't want to think about or talk about or mm-hmm. so until they absolutely need to, it doesn't get discussed. I actually have a theory on it and, and it's this, it's a, it's the same way with a, a lot of the organizations that try to exist to help people. The You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but the world is filled with the haves and the have nots. And it's easier for the haves to sleep at night to think that things exist. And often they don't. Yeah. So it's easier for people to go to the voting box on Tuesday, this upcoming week, and say, we don't need to have a bunch of social services. That's just big government. There's already enough stuff out there. But these same people don't want to turn around and give an organization like mine a dime. Right. And so we have to figure out how to stay afloat. There is not a ton of services out there for people that need rehab. There is zero, almost zero uh, services out there for children and family. There's a couple, okay? Don't get me wrong. And they're busting their butts to do what they can do. But there isn't a lot of services out there when it comes to the difficult things that we have to deal with. Suicide prevention, addiction, homelessness. They don't. But the haves sleep at night thinking Thinking they do. They do. The, you know, we're not. Yeah, they're out there. They're somewhere. And so then they don't have to worry about it. Well, this is this is one thing that I see. And it's kind of kind of germane to what we're talking about. But there's two realities or there's kind of a duplicitous understanding of the military. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of people that are pro-America, pro-military, pro-da-da-da-da-da. But then you look at what services veterans are getting, mental health, post-traumatic stress, addiction, and all this other stuff. And it's like when you're in and, you, and you're carrying a gun, we love you. When you're out, you're walking down the street with nothing. Mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I, the, the, similar to what you're talking about, it's funny to me. You know, There's kind of these forgotten mm-hmm. people, the elderly, the addicts, the mental yeah. health, the veterans – that, you know, you talk about kind of just believing that there's something out there for them and they're not actually being that. And I know there's VAs and all this other stuff, but uh, I just it, it amazes me in 2020 that we still have the amount of homeless people that we have. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is addiction. A lot of that is mental health. A lot of that is, you know, veterans and all these other things. But sorry, to I, I digress. Um no, don't. I mean, this is a passion of mine. I'll definitely get myself in trouble if we talk about it too much because I have strong views on well, it. Well, please, if you have a view. I mean, how do you perceive uh, the way that we deal with veterans in this country? It's interesting you say that because I actually have recently um, came into a really close relationship with a, a veteran that is, uh, you know, has PTSD. He uh, served our military, you know, um, faithfully for five and a half years of a six year tour before everything happened. He's an amazing guy. And, and, and I've just really, really like my community has just come around him and we really love him and just seeing, you know, where he is at, where, yeah. Okay. Maybe they have some counseling or whatever, but you know, you got a guy that is 28 years old. Um, and basically, you know, they're saying you're disabled for the rest of your life. Listen, man, if you don't give a guy something to do and a purpose, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think he's going to sit back and collect a check and be grateful that you're giving him a little bit of money for what he did and, and be happy with that? Listen, if a person doesn't have a purpose, doesn't have something to wake up every day for, then it's going to end badly. And it's, and it's unbelievable to me that, you know, this guy who has so many uh, gifts and skills and the type of person he is, is, is now just like cast out. Like, yeah, go figure something out. 
Right. And yeah, we'll give you a, you know, a counselor here, a doctor appointment there. But the reality is that's it. After you've trained this guy to do a certain task and now he's, he's kind of left out in the lurch where I wake up every day and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, in you saying that, I've never really thought of it in this way before, and this is probably where I'm going to get myself in trouble. But and and I'm 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 out of my depth here. So to to veterans who are listening, people in active service, I'm I'm speaking from a position of ignorance, and I'm recognizing it from the outset. But a lot of what I perceive the military to train people, I don't know if it's necessarily good for them. You know, to take a person and train them to. You know, it's not that they're just trained to kill. I mean, there's EMTs and there's engineers and, you know, that's an overly simplistic view of what the military is and what it does. But some of that training, I don't know from a mental health perspective, if it's necessarily good for them. I I understand there's a need for a military, you know, there's a need for these things. But there's a crossover, too, when we talk about the police, you know, there's this whole defund the police thing Mm and, you know, that's been construed to mean a, a number of different things. And, and one of the arguments or one of the slants there is we don't need to make the police, the military, they don't need to be, you know, that's not what they're meant to be. And by training them as soldiers, they're going to act mm-hmm. as soldiers. And then you're going to have a lot of these types of things that we're seeing with shootings and so on and so forth. And so, I know we're again getting a field, but uh, you know a lot of a lot of what you see with veterans. I just wonder if you got to expect it just by nature of what you're training them to do and the positions you're putting them in. Yeah, and uh, let me just say this: I too am ignorant, and I and to all the veterans out there, you know, I I have no um, skill set here. But as a as a mental health counselor, I can say. We absolutely need the people to be trained to do the things that they do. That's not necessarily the problem. So I don't think it's like, hey, let's not teach this guy how to handle things if we end up in a war. No, but there, it, it's a transition. It's like there's got to be some other training to help with the de-escalation of leaving. Right. As opposed to you're in Yemen one day and you get blown up and you're in- Publix in Tampa the next Publix day. in Tampa the next. baby food, yeah. Okay, so what kind of life skills that are actually beneficial outside of the skills that we need to protect our country need to be emphasized a little bit more? It's always the exit plan that gets us. You know, it we're is, real it's good just, about walking into places. It's no, the man, getting out of them. That totally. Are- it's the same way with rehabs. It's sure. the same problem that I have with most of the rehabs that exist. They're real good when you're in there. But what the heck good are they once a person has to walk outside those doors? Right, right. Well, let's so let's get to when you get the call from your friend to how we get to, you know, your recovery, Timothy Initiative and that sort of thing. Mm. So um, where when, when you got that call, where did you go? Well, when he gave me that call, like I said, I went and met this this old man named Pops and uh, and he really taught me a job about Jesus and what it means to be loved and grace and salvation and all these concepts that I'd never, ever heard. And over the next few years, I was able to, uh, you know, gain a foothold on my recovery, learn about Jesus and recognize that um, my life was meant for more than it than I'd originally thought. Right. And what I mean by that is for years, I thought my life was meant for me. Okay. And um, so when you think your life is only meant for you, then you're looking out for you. 
And I finally came to the determination that, no, my life has got to be about something bigger than myself. And over the time of probably two years between getting sober, relapsing, getting sober, finding Jesus, trying to get a regular job in the world back like I used to do, failing, you know, this whole culmination of things. Finally, it was like one more of those, throw my hands up. Okay, God, what is it you want for me? What do you want me to do? And, you know, he brought me back to that first day I was in detox and just how hard it was to get in there and how there's no way that the majority of the people I've met in my addiction could go through all the hoops that they need to go through in order to do that. And he brought me back to that moment where I was in my first detox where I said, if I ever get sober, I'm going to help people do this. Yeah. I'm going to help people get in and out of, of sobriety because this is ridiculous how hard it is. Right. And it was then that I, I really, you know, figured out, you know, I had some college credits and what could I do with them and how could I be a counselor and then became an ordained pastor and, um, you know, really started on my journey into helping men and women and whoever in recovery and following Jesus. So where did the Timothy Initiative idea come from? The name of mm -hmm. it? How did that come about? Well, you know, the way it really came about is, um, you know, I'd been working with men and women, whatever, in recovery, a lot of homeless um, here in Tampa. I had just came back from being a pastor in Orlando where I'd started a men's ministry. Um, and I met some guys and they started this organization called the, the Underground, which is, a, you know, it's a a bunch of different uh, 501c3s that operate under one umbrella, but they needed some help getting their building built out. And so they asked me to come and kind of watch the project with a bunch of the people I was working with. Made sense. It gave me a chance to help with the homeless and stuff and and yet, you know, do my discipleship and sobriety. And one of the leaders was like, you know, you should start another organization one day doing this. And I was like, no way. And it was right about then that... Um, my sister died from a drug overdose. This was in 2009. And, you know, that moment made me realize, okay, I've got to do more. I've got to, I can't just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm almost hiding the gifts that God's given me by not doing more. And uh, I decided to start an organization officially and, you know, jumped through all the hoops of the 501c3 and now I got to get donors and I got to get all situated and be official. And seven months later is when my brother died from a drug overdose. How old are you? I am 51. So you're one of six or one of five? One of five. And three of three of those siblings are gone. Died tragically. Yeah. I can't even, you know, I've lost both my parents, but a sibling is going to be something different. And, and uh, you know, one of them was by an accident. One of them was by a drug overdose. Two of them by drug the overdose. The brother was too. And he was the attorney from mm -hmm. Stetson. And you guys were lived together and were yeah. pretty close to each other. Yeah. Were you aware that what he was going through when he was going through it or? Yeah. You know, I, um, I'd helped, tried to help both my sister and my brother. And, you know, my brother in particular, I had gotten in and out of uh, a couple different detoxes. Um, I think the harder thing about my brother was the week before he died is he had left me a message saying he was going to commit suicide. 
And so I, he lived at Treasure Island at the time. I was here in Tampa. You know, I called the local police department, had him do a wellness check, and they, they, ca- they found him. He was alive. He's like, no, I'm not going to, you know, even at the very end, he was a very gifted speaker. And so the police were like, oh, yeah, he's just going through something. You're overreacting. Um, and, you know, I, I let it go. And then it was a week later that he, he, he died. And so that's the part of me that's like, I, I believe it was suicidal, um, suicide. And that's based on what I know from what happened before, Right. where I think if, you know, we had more awareness of things like that, then situations like this maybe don't have to happen. Right. So, um, you know, my sister, she died from an overdose, you know, at the time she was going, um, she had, you know, she had HIV, she was, uh, going through hepatitis, uh, C interferon treatments. Um, and, uh, you know, a big part of that is a lot of times people commit suicide. So, you know, both are questionable for me. Um, but the thing that was really hardest for me to, um, handle is the recognition that if years prior, anybody was to say, which one of these three that are all doing drugs, do you think is going to die? It would have been me. I would have been everybody's first choice. I was the one that no one thought that they that would make it. And so I, I kind of recognized in one light, who do I think I am to try to help other people when I couldn't even help my brother or my sister? But in another light, why am I even still alive? And so I had the, you know, to make that decision, do I push forward, even though this could be seen by some as an indication that I don't know what I'm doing? Or do I push forward saying, no, I'm going to get stronger because of this. And I chose to continue moving forward. And and the Timothy Initiative kind of rolled out right from there. Uh, gosh, a, a lot to go through there. One of the questions that comes up for me in, in hearing your story and hearing stories in general, have you devoted any thinking to kind of what lays as the seed to the fact that three of five children, you know, struggled with addiction, Mm -hmm. whether it's biological, environmental, you know, the, the family unit, the lack thereof, what they're exposed to as to what kind of brings us out or brings us up. Yeah. uh, Actually I've spent (laughs) probably 11 years pondering that and studying that and, and trying to, you know, to come to grips with what it is and, you know, because and I'm sure it's not this. Uh, there's probably many answers. Well, there is many answers. Uh, you know, but I, I think first and foremost, what is disheartening to me is that in 1952, addiction was classified as a disease, but the world still to this day does not recognize it as a disease. That's problematic because it is, and so when we don't recognize something for what it is, we tend to treat it differently. Therefore, you know, if, if I know somebody's got diabetes, um, you know, I, I don't, I give them grace, even though they look down on them because they have diabetes. I don't look down on them. Even if they, even if they die from it, I don't look down on them for it. Even if I know they were eating 16 Big Macs a day at their funeral, I'm not like, well, they were eating those 16 Big Macs a day. Yeah. I'm like, man, it's, this is horrible. They died. But if it's an addict, which is the same disease or same classification. Yeah, they got what they, they got. What they, they got what they, right. Yeah. Exactly. So I do believe it's a disease. I do believe that we need to look at it differently in the way that people recover differently. Now, to, to pinpoint your question with my family in particular, I do believe, you know, that there is something in the genetic code that three of us 
came down with basically the exact same conditions. My sister, that's still alive, is actually much different than I am behaviorally, her, 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 the type of personality, everything. She's a wonderful, amazing, loving human being, where by nature, that's not me. By nature, I'm self-centered, you know, kind of obnoxious. Without Jesus, I'm not the guy that you would be wanting to sit and have a conversation with. But my brother and sister were the same as me. We acted the same outside of drugs, same personalities, same behaviors. So there's something to be said about that. Because of the age difference, the 10 years in between us, you know, obviously we didn't come up with the same exact experiences. So therefore, it leads me to believe that, yeah, genetically something was there too. I, I wonder, well, so thank you for that answer. But I, I, as a parent, you know, you worry about, mm -hmm. are you doing right by your children? You know, and, and so. And you should. Well, I mean, sure. But what did you, how big of an impact do you think that part has on uh, a child's addiction at some point? Well, I think, you know. I think we need to be more aware of things like the ACEs, um, you know, ACEs test, which is, okay. you know, um, a, a great way to look at like people that, you know, have these adverse childhood experiences. Well, especially with like sex, you know, the sex thing you mentioned, you're, and, oh, yeah. and I, I've dealt with that as a prosecutor. I've dealt with that as a mm -hmm. private attorney in, 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 uh, not me specifically, but in the family, there's mm -hmm. been, you know, incidents of that. And so um, I was watching not too long ago the uh, Jeffrey Epstein documentary, mm -hmm. and uh, it was all, just woman after woman coming on and these beautiful women who had their whole life ahead of them to do these wonderful things. And, you know, some of them did, but that one incident or that one mm -hmm relatively small period of time in their life stole that from them, yeah. you know? And I don't know that it has to be that way, but it seems as though whatever that act, that impact that act has on a child or a young person, it sets them up for feeling less than or mm -hmm. sets them up for feeling incapable or sets them up for a feeling of guilt where, what maybe they would have done or could have been, they now feel incapable of. And so, again, I'm not saying that I think that that's true, but I think that's a perception that they feel when they're victimized mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah. So, you know. I do. I do agree with you wholeheartedly there that, uh, you know, adult, you know, ACEs test, the uh, adverse childhood experiences basically goes through 10 different things that happen to a child. And if you rate the things that a, per a child, you know, scores on there, if you score over three, then there's a good chance that they're going to end up in addiction or prison, right? I score like an eight out of 10. And out of those that I scored by far, sex is the biggest thing. Sex is to this day, I'm in, you know, SLA, sex, love and addiction treatment. Um, it is the most destructive thing that can happen to a person because of the way that it influences the identity that a person has. So you're right is, you know, my brother, sister, and I all had those, that same experience. So which of these things that we they share had incidents with sexual abuse too, not necessarily sexual abuse. Well, some, my sister, yes. And so Early on sex, sex looked at from a, uh, they call it, you know, in counseling, over-sexualization of behavior um, was very common. And that leads to a different type of identity and then 
you know, you either have the male who lives out of the identity as thinking he's a stud or or thinking he's gay, and the female that thinks she's either a slut or she becomes frigid, right? And these are all because of things that happen in a sexual manner at some point in their life. Well, the other thing that I, I imagine is difficult, there's a, a, a comedian, Patton Oswalt, who does this joke about it, it's much easier to quit drugs than it is to quit overeating because you know you you either use coke or you don't use but you can't stop eating you have to eat right you know so it's a matter of moderation or modulation yeah. and so with sex i would imagine it's somewhat similar because absolutely you know being completely abstinent not that i mean i guess there's some arguments for that in different religion or whatever but in general, a healthy sex life is having sex, but then right. there's too much or too, too, you know, so it's it's harder when you can't just cold turkey something, you know, you right. have to kind of walk a middle road. Right. And then, you know, you, you yeah. let me say this is that um, with the men that I disciple uh, often, you know, by the time they get to the point of, you know, marriage or whatever, they've been sober three, four years and I have to have the talk and the talk is this. You don't realize that like, hey, you've been abstinent, you've been doing all these good things, you're, you're great, right? And, and maybe you haven't had lustful thoughts or maybe you haven't had sexual thoughts that were bad. But as soon as you have sex with your wife on your honeymoon night, that's all going to change. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be like, you're mentally going to be thinking, is it because I don't love her? What is it? Well, no, it's because of the dopamine receptors within your brain. It's because of everything that you've managed to shut down in your sobriety yeah. is going to be reawakened in that sexual intercourse that you'll have with your wife on that, on that wedding night in a totally godly way. That's all wonderful. But if you got a history of addiction, then it's going to awaken something in you that's going to cause you to struggle. Right. And I want you to be aware of that ahead of time so we can walk through this together because it's a real thing, man. And that's the type of thing that like sexual behavior can do. It does something with our, you know, the the, the receptors in our brain. And then also it, it does something to our very souls. It's amazing the identity that we attribute based on sex and the importance that we put there because you say that's you know it, it's a it's a double-edged sword as mm -hmm. far as men and women's relationship traditionally with it you know it's something to be proud of as a man it's something to be ashamed of as a woman uh, but there's a lot of power there too and there's yeah. a lot of how you value yourself and you know feeling attractive feeling wanted you know and you know one of the things that i run into a lot in family law and i've had this conversation with other attorneys is the impact of a father's relationship with a daughter on who that daughter is when she grows up and uh, you know, an, a, a missing father a lot of times. And I, you know, the, I'm all, great. There's same sex marriages there's single parent families. Families can look any different way and that's completely fine. But oftentimes I see certain behaviors manifest mm -hmm. when based on the relationship with the father. And I've had this discussion with my therapist and, you know, I say, God, I, I feel like I'm a little bit too tough on my daughter or whatever. Mm -hmm. and she, she'll jokingly say, don't worry about it. The mother's relationship with the kids is far more impactful on who they become <laughs> than a father. And I'm like, oh, great that I have free license to be an asshole. But, um, you know, I in my mind, every false move that I make is like leaving this print right. on my children. And so in talking about the, the family impact on 
on the child and how that works out to addiction. I mean, at the end of the day, I just boil it down to you've got to love them as much as you can and communicate that love to them as much Absolutely. as you can. And if you can do that, then everything else is kind of gravy. You know, mm-hmm. you just got to let them know that they're loved and show love and and, and all that other kind of stuff. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about. So I was uh, my father was in the seminary to become a priest before he met my mom, Catholic, Irish, New mm-hmm. York. Um, my mother's faith identity was not quite so strong. It was kind of some, you know, evolution between Presbyterian and all these different types of denominations. But when she met my father, she, you know, came into the church and all this stuff. And so as a kid, first through eighth grade, I went to Catholic school. I had a pretty strong religious identity. Uh, and then into college and then in law school, basically faith is not a part of my life really anymore. Um, and a lot of these recovery programs, whether it's AA or what you're doing, are faith-based. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering your view on how important that is. Do you see that as the only way? Is is there a way uh, to recover without that's a traditional faith being a part of it? Like, how do you talk about that with people? Because I'm sure you run into people mm-hmm. who maybe say, you know, this is not for me. I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic or whatever. How do you talk about that with those people? So first, let me cover um, yeah, how you mentioned, you know, your your mother and your father and you walked away. You know, faith wasn't a, a part of your life. Um, I, the way I, I heard you, I, I think you're talking more about religion in, in those in those examples. Um, and I'll be the first one to tell you that I don't believe in religion either. I'm very anti-religion. I am all about a relationship with Jesus and seeing him as the father that loves me and the one that created me and the one that saved my life and the one that knew me before the foundations of this world. And that's a different thing than a religious faith. A religious faith sort of to me signifies, did you go to church enough? Did you, you know, read your Bible enough? Did you say the Hail Marys, the Amens at the right time? That type of thing where... For me, and it's interesting because I've been having this conversation a lot recently with a friend of mine who is an agnostic, sober man who's done his sobriety through 12 steps and having like difficult conversations about it where, you know, he's not a fan of God and, you know, not a fan of religion. But he actually said to me the other day, he goes, I got to be honest, in my 48 years of living here in this world, I've never heard Jesus explain the way you did to me. That's totally different. And the reality is, even in the faith-based programs, okay, and I'm not knocking anybody, I think anything that works for somebody, amen, but majority of faith-based programs, um, we're talking about a program for one, so that means that they have 12 months or six months to fix somebody and make them better and send them into the world. So they try to force religion on them. And so maybe it's not Catholic religion, maybe it doesn't look like that, but it's still, here's these Bible verses, memorize them, recite, recite them five times, and so on and so forth. That's religion. It's not relationship. And so for me, I can look at that and say, I get why what you're doing isn't necessarily working. Um, I can look at, you know, people that are in 12 steps and, and be sober for 20 years and their higher power can be something other than God the Father, and, and they're doing okay. Now, the, the question is inherently, do I think that they are fully recovered the way they could be, is the way I would phrase it. And honestly, 
I'm, I'm glad for anybody that feels like they're sober and their life is the way they want it. But I personally don't believe that we can live a fully recovered life without knowing who we are in the Father. Not religion. I don't care if you go to church. Don't go to church. I don't go to church right now. I'm talking about a relationship with the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one that will never leave you or never forsake you, the one that knew before the foundation of the world that he would consider you holy, blameless, and perfect in his sight. That's that's all I want from my guys, which I believe, you know, which is part of why we have men that make four, five, nine years sober, because we're not talking religion. We're talking relationship. We're not even talking sobriety. We're talking transformation. We don't kick guys out for getting high. We don't kick guys out for getting drunk. We, we're there to love them, to say, listen, there's a better way to go through life. And when we, when people can see that, when they can see that they could have hope and purpose, and that can come from being loved by their fellow man. And then one, one day when they're ready, they see God in their fellow man and therefore believe they can see it in themselves. That's totally different, man. It's a totally different thing for me. You mentioned having tough, tough conversations with friend of yours. So mm-hmm. can we have a tough conversation? <laughs> can, yeah. Can, can I? Well, I just questions that I have. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Go for so it. So you, in talking about God, you use the pronoun he. So in thinking, thinking of it, do you think of it as a him or is that just a word that you're using? No, that's just the word. No, I, God is not he or she. Okay. Um, do you think that this is a being like a was was man at one mm-hmm. time or was woman? Yeah. Okay. Um, and pre-existed the creation of the planet, the universe, these sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's the part that I have difficulty with. That's the part that I have trouble wrapping my mind around. So yeah, I'm interested in getting in how you get there, or how yeah, you, you know conceptually how you get there. I'm not all that smart, and so what for me, I look at it this way. I look at it as um, sometimes we try to, to answer a question that we were not prepared to answer. So that's, that's a good point. And that's one that I've, I kind of, this is, this is the one that comforts me is we're not equipped to conceive of it. Right. <laughs> you know, so stop trying, you know, that's, that's kind of the the medicine that gets me through the day is it's a, it's a fool's errand to try and yeah. fully conceptualize of it. So just... Especially when, you know, we're looking at things that, you know, could be cause conflict between how I view it, you view it, or others view it, where I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know about all that stuff. How about this? There's a father that you, that created you. There's, there, you know, there's the, there's the Jesus that walked on this earth that like even atheists agree that did happen. There are even eyewitnesses accounts that he was crucified and he did walk after. So, Let's just look at him and let's look at like what he actually set out to accomplish. And and I this is where I get myself in trouble. The Western church has made it so hard for people to come into that relationship because they they think that, you know, everybody has to be um, you know, the the type of American pro-America, God's country type of person in order to believe in the Father, which no, no, you don't. It, I just want you to know that there's a father that created you that loves you and wants to know you more. Right. And if, and if say, you came into TI and you and I were spending time together, we wouldn't be talking about who created the planets. We not, probably would if you. Wait, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's probably. I don't, I don't yeah. follow sports. I follow uh, Camus and Nietzsche and, uh, you know. No, no. Yeah. I, 
I, I would be talking about the father that, that loves you and, and, and who he is. And listen, with the men that we deal with, it's easier for us to come. This is where I think what you asked me earlier about, is, this is your rock bottom or whatever. I look at it. These guys are, it's easier for them to come to this understanding because they don't have anything else. Right. You have, you're, you're an attorney, you got your life together, you got money, you got a beautiful wife, you got this cool office. It's going to be harder for you to realize or recognize what would, what it would be like to that's have a, that's nothing. A, that's an amazing point. And I think that's a problem with mm-hmm. politics and yeah. policy and, you know, is, is the people who are making the decisions. I, I, I wanted to get to something else. I, I'm not getting off this topic. I want to fin- finish yeah, this, but that's cool. you came to me about a week ago with Chris, which yeah. is how I met you. And I was talking to you. I just interviewed Brian Schaefer from Skate Park of Tampa. And I was telling you about work I had done with Tom DeGeorge and mm-hmm. how I was interested in, you know, kind of helping Ebor, Ebor Heights, Nebraska <laughs> Avenue, that part of the thing. Yeah. And you were saying, well, I, I just got to warn you that when people talk about improving areas what they really mean is driving out the poverty or driving out the addicts and you weren't saying this about brian or tom or any of these no, other no, people but no. um i thought that was a great point and it's one that i consider often is you know the 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 people that need representation are very underrepresented because very you know, there's very few recovering addicts who are presidents senators or at least openly. Openly, know. yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, people talk about Hunter Biden in the terms of Joe as a as a as an Achilles heel or as something to be. And I'm like, this is a person who has dealt firsthand with addiction. This is a person yeah. who has had to have a relationship and love someone who has fallen and who is, you know, if if hopefully there's an empathy there that maybe we wouldn't get with other people, right. you know? So, um, I, interesting, it, you know, I'm seeing kind of, a, 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 a you know, a things coming together between what you're saying about me, what you had said about Ebor and, 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 you know, it's, it's when everything else is gone, what are you reaching for and, and yeah. what's there to help you? So anyway, Keep going with what you're talking about. You no, what it was. <laughs> yeah, Luke, I gotta, I do have to share this with you. I left your office last week and got to my office. I was there five minutes and my wife runs in and she's like, honey, our friend got shot back home. We got to go. So we take off to run to my neighborhood and our friend had just gotten shot in the arm in a drive-by shooting. So I was like, this is the type of stuff that you were talking about. Yeah. So we have, yeah, we, he was okay. He, it was a ricochet shot and, and he, but there was a drive-by shooting in the middle of the day. So right after I'd left you, um, it's just, you know, I, I just look at it as it's easier from, a, you know, just on that point. I just often see people that, you know, they their property values, they want them to go up. They want their stocks to go up. They want all, you know, all that to, they want more, right? And so it's just easier to, you know, make the argument for gentrification than it is for, uh, you know, restoration of people. And so if I can gentrify and move people someplace else, that helps me. Where, you know, if you want to help somebody turn their life around, you may not benefit from it. And it may even hold you back from getting some of the benefits you think you deserve. But you help a person. Well, this is the argument that I constantly have with my family. They're like, you're an attorney. Why do, why do you want to pay tax? You know, why do you want to pay these taxes? Why do you want to? And it's hard. It's like, well, because, you know, I'm not first. You know, you got to like. Yeah. 
I think if everybody was a hundred percent for for the other, yeah, it would be so much more of a beautiful place than a hundred percent for yourself or eighty percent for yourself yeah. or whatever the thing is. And so, you know, voting against your your interests is not the easy thing to do, but it's you know what's the saying all ships rise with the tides or whatever like yeah we're, we're only as strong as our weakest link you know these are the things that kind of are mantras in my brain or touchstone and i and i step off the path you know i was like oh that would be a cool car to have or right. what i'd really like to do you know i'm, I'm human and these are things but i i do try and say you know and, and and so i i loved what you said there the other day when you said, well, I, I, I want to warn you that yeah. what, what you're talking about and what I'm talking about may not be the same thing. And I thought that was great. And it, and it was a reminder to me about, you know, hiding the problems isn't fixing the problems, right. you know? And so bringing that back around to what we were just talking about, you were saying how it might be difficult for me sure. to see that path or, or, or whatever the thing was, because there's these other things, you know, I've got this office, I've got this job, I've got this family and all these other things. So that's, that's a very good point. And it's one that I want to meditate on and think about because it's true. I have, I have distractions or I have other things that are medicating me where if they were all gone, you know, would I change my tune about things? And so that's, you know, part of Timothy initiative is that we are open-ended and we, we only want men that want to come in for a life commitment of walking through life together. And what that looks like, so we don't sound all kooky is like Chris, he's still in my life. He's got his wife, he's got his nice house and all that, but he's still heavily involved. So when we say like, Hey, we want, we're in life together. We're doing this together because we need one another. And so even when a guy comes, like, he, well, let me I, go I ahead. Interrupt you. Yeah, no, do it. But you talked about men, and when a guy comes, so why is it that it's focused on men? Is that by design? Is that just oh yeah, by, okay. yeah? I will tell you this. Why but, is that important, or why is it that way? Oh, you don't want to run a recovery that has men and women in it. Okay, that's a horrible idea. And anybody out there thinking of it, don't do it. Okay, it's a bad idea. And if you're a man thinking you want to run a woman's organization, don't do that. Okay, you're dealing with vulnerable people that you're setting somebody up to fail. I had Joe Redner on uh, the show. You know who he is, of course. And uh, you know the different world and yeah. maybe very much the the other angle of what we're talking about but one of the things he said is I, i've learned very early on not to have any male managers at my strip club i've heard him say that yeah before. and you know not the same thing that you're saying but you you know there's these uh i heard elon musk use the use this phrase and i've i've now say it all the time attack vectors or weak points yeah or where what are, where are the points right. of weakness in this right. scenario? <laughs> and so I'm assuming that's kind of what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So men need to kind of be. Listen, it, it, you know, it's I don't, I'm not trying to say that men need to be totally separate or whatever. I'm just saying you, you don't want to run an organization that you're trying to do both at the same time. Right. You know, so okay. it's not like my men aren't allowed to be around women or something. We're not like. We're not like a, you know, some type of a weird group of people, you know, that it's going to end up having some HBO special about, but it's, you know, but in general, like the recovery aspect of living in the house, or even if it was a building, I I would not want both men. Okay. Well, so that, that, that makes perfect sense. So, so, uh, and you talked about, you know, it's a, it's a, 
it's a lifetime relationship. It's right. not a 12-month program. And the reason I say that is because I could get a call to, today after whenever you post this and somebody's like, I've heard about your great success rate and I want to send my son or my husband there. And I'd ask a couple questions and they'd be like, yeah, you know, so in six months he can come back home and support the family. And no, I'm not going to take him because he's already got things in this world that can work for him. I want the ones that have absolutely nothing. They've got no opportunity. They have no family. They have nowhere they can go. Because as the guy that I can say, listen, there's a father in heaven that loves you. And he can be like, I've always wanted that. Give them a foundation to build off of instead of yeah. trying to instead build of, on someone else's foundation. Listen, Chris Bryant, your, your cousin or whatever, is the only one that I've ever had to say this to. And he did it, which is to his credit. But at the time he came in, I let him keep his job. He was making like 50, 55,000 a year. And he kept relapsing. And so finally, I said, if you want to stay, you quit the job. I actually like, I can't believe I'm asking a guy to quit a $55,000 a year job. Right. And he did. Because I'm like, there's no way you're going to get sober and stay sober while making that kind of money. No way. None. Yeah. And he, to his credit, he quit. And to his credit, he's nine years sober now. Because sometimes we have to die to every desire we've ever had in order to get what we truly need. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. I, you know, I, I, I've seen it firsthand through him and I, it, it's, it's, it's one of the most awe-inspiring things that I've witnessed. I have such, such uh, respect for him and what he's done. He's such a hero to me because, you know, with my parents, uh, they're both past now. They didn't die specifically from addiction, but they both had cancer and, mm -hmm. If you know anything about cancer, one of the great things that feed and grow cancer is sugar. And one of the great ways to receive sugar is through alcohol. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people that die of cancer, you can trace back and see there's a history of that yeah. in their life. And, you know, towards the end, they were both pretty heavily into it. And you had also mentioned about when you became addicted to pills, how it wasn't like it is today. I would argue today is not Shangri-La from what it was back then because right. I saw firsthand my parents with broken hips, cancer, their their homes are a cornucopia of hydrocodone and oxycotton yeah. and Valium and Xanax and all this stuff. And they would they would abuse it, not like kids, you no, know, I whatever. Know what you mean. But yeah. my back hurts or I can't sleep. So can I have a Xanax or yeah. can I have a hydrocodone? It's like this is not Tylenol. This is right. not and Coupling that with drinking, you know, I would get calls and I'm an only child. I get calls in the middle of the night. Hey, your dad fell into the bookcase and there's glass everywhere and there's blood everywhere. And I would just get so angry with them. It's just so angry. It's like, and I would wrongfully, but I would say that it was their inability, that it was a reflection of their love for me. Right. You know, you must not love me if you can't kick this. And I'm sure that that's psychologically something that yeah. loved ones of addicts go through and addicts go through. And I wanted to ask you if it's okay. You mentioned you had had mm -hmm. a child before you. Yeah. Is that child still in your life? Or Oh, absolutely. Okay. He's the reason I got sober. Um, I have an amazing relationship with my son uh, and my ex-wife for that matter. And, you know, it was rough for quite a few years in the beginning. And, you know, I got my crap together and uh, I've, I'd like to believe I've been a really good father in his life. And I, I just, I, I would love to know his feelings about it and what yeah. he says about it. What do you think? How old is he now? He, you know, what's amazing is 
listen, I don't say this for sympathy, but I don't, I, I make, you know, under 30 grand a year. Uh-huh. Okay. And we set out to, to get him into a good college and he's a really good football player. And I'm so proud of how hard he worked in his schooling and everything. And he's actually at a, at a division three school up in Minnesota right now, Gustavus Adolphus. But this school costs 70,000 a year. And man, God is just really like taking me through this journey of like, I will provide. And my kid is going to school there. We pay like five grand a year and he's getting this education at this one of the best schools, liberal arts schools in the country, playing football, just really like achieving so many of his dreams. And I'm just blown away by it all. Well, I, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder what, you know, and it's hard to get kids, especially of that age, to have heartfelt conversations about <laughs> anything it's like whatever i don't know you know yeah but for to to have his daddy saved to have his daddy turn his life around and to be a healthy part of that you know so rare is that the case that right. god you know so what a blessing for him and what a blessing for you and you know i i just you know having a, a boy's father or a parent pull themselves out of it and turn it around. It's just such an amazing thing. Um, So let's just talk a little bit about um, Timothy Initiative now and where it is and what it does and kind of, uh, I've been lucky enough to send some people that I've worked with as clients to you. And, uh, you know, one of, I I was a former prosecutor over in Pinellas and, and since going into private practice, I do some criminal work. It's not my primary area, but I do it uh, either members of families who I've helped or clients that I've had forever. And so this one family, horrible situation, but with people who need to get into recovery or need to do community service, if they're violent offenders, it's very difficult to find them work anywhere. So I'm not going to name names for obvious reasons, but thank you very much for helping, you know, who I'm talking about out. That was, that was amazing too. Um, so is there just one campus where, where is it located? Tell tell me a little bit about it. Like (laughs) he says campus. How funny is that? Anybody who knows me is like, okay, no campuses. Uh It's just funny because that's typically a mega church thing. Anyways. Uh, yeah, we have four houses. We house about 35 men. They're right here in the inner city. Um, you know, it's a great group of guys that, you know, we right now, I think we just did the average recently and we got about three and a half years in our main house is the average clean time, um, which is outstanding. And, you know, we have a construction business that's a, a nonprofit construction business, it, but it operates to help the men learn a trade. Um, and, you know, so they can be able to do something, you know, work-wise with their life once they're out of here. And, you know, Phenomenally speaking, all the men that run the ministry, the organization now, have come from within. So I don't hire outside. And I'm actually the executive director now. And there's somebody else that's actually the day-to-day director. And we have our office right over here in um, off of 15th in, in the inner city. And um, I actually gives me the freedom to start the Sober Truth Project, which is, you know, different similar, but different. And, you know, how is it different? What's the, tell me the different goals of the two. Well, Sober Truth Project is actually more about uh, changing the way the world looks at recovery as a whole around addiction, mental health issues and suicide prevention. So it's not just about, you know, one, it's about the recovery around the one, because, 
I think that the problem I've seen is that the world thinks that the person who's suffering, it's their problem or it's their family's problem. And it keeps the world around us from being empathetic and realizing they play a role in this too. So if we don't adopt different drug laws, if we don't adopt different ways of helping people be rehabilitated, if we don't adopt different ways of giving people opportunities for careers and jobs after getting sober, then we're never going to see people turn their lives around. If we don't adopt a different way of looking at a person who's struggling with mental health and recognize, hey, listen, they have to have everybody around them be a healthy environment. If we don't realize that, you know, mental health, addiction, and sometimes suicidal thoughts are not static things. They are journey things. They are things that the person has to go on this journey of life with. That thank you, I'm sorry, but yeah, this, this reminded me of of a point that I wanted to make earlier. So uh I started the therapy before both my parents passed. I had was having troubles and in, in, in feeling guilty about not being able to help them more and what part I, I played in their mm-hmm. recovery or what part I played in all this. But but one of the things that uh has been a recurring theme that we talked about, and I, I think I named it this, not the therapist, but about being able to live in the pocket without reacting in a way. And so when I call the pocket, you get in a fight with your wife and you're Mm -hmm. feeling, you know, triggered or whatever, and you want to look for a way out of it. What do you, what do you reach for to get yourself out of it? Is Mm -hmm. it, is it booze? Is it drugs? Is it going to the gym? Is it eating something you shouldn't or being able to just know that this is temporary. You know, my father always used to say this too shall pass. That was his favorite thing he would always say. And, you know, uh, I've listened to people talk about it and I've reflected on it in my life. And just to be able to say to yourself, just give it a minute, give it a day, give it a week. Just, you don't need to have, everybody thinks they have to have the answer today, this Mm -hmm. minute, you know, what's the answer. And there is such a gift to me to be able to say that, well, I'll just hang out until the answer comes. I don't need to, you know, go do something drastic Mm -hmm. to fix this problem. Just, you know, you, you mentioned you were at bottom and you got that call, you know, you would have never expected that call. There was a, there was an interview with a Sarah Silverman comedian. And it's funny, uh, so much of my life has been (laughs) the result of listening to comedians talk about their life and why, why this is, you'll find this amusing is people who go into comedy very often are addicts, people who had very dark childhoods, very, very psychologically kind of sketchy views of the world and themselves. Mm -hmm. And the place that I came to that, got to hear that from was a podcast, the WTF podcast, which is what inspired me to do this. And Mark Maron, who runs that show, is a recovering addict. He used to be with Sam Kinison. Did he write the book? Uh, I can't say the words. (laughs) He's written a number of books. Yeah, yeah. It's probably what you're thinking of. But he has got a curse word in it. Yeah. But he's so he's so I got hooked on this show and it was all these comedians and Pat Oswalt was on there talking about yeah. his relationship with food. He's like, it's easy to stop doing coke. You just don't do. Co-. I mean, he was speaking in jest, but you don't have to do coke. You have to eat food, you know, and um, Louis C.K., who's had his problems, you know, with sex yeah. and all this yeah, other yeah. stuff. But he talked about, you know, how he he realized that um, if he was you know, masturbating or there's something else. It was usually because he was uncomfortable in the position that he was in and looking for some tool to get him out of it. And then Sarah Silverman, another one, she said, 
we look at the world and we look at our future through a pinprick and a plate. Mm -hmm. And we only see this very small part of what's out there for us, what's available. There's no way for us to conceive of what's coming. So for us to spend too much time worrying about it or thinking about it, it's just not a rational thing. And so getting back to the story that you told, there's no way you could have ever considered that this guy would have called you five minutes after getting out. And, but for that happening, you know, who knows what path your life would have taken. And then taking that forward, I'm sure you've been that phone call to so many people and it just branches out from there. So this thing that is all born of these little ripples and these incidences, but, uh, you again, I'm going up. Sorry, Christian Meyer. Um, <laughs> the fact that everything is temporary, what yeah. you're feeling right now is temporary. What you're feeling right now will go away. Yeah. If you can just make it to the other side of it, you yeah. know, I think that's something that is very helpful for people to yeah. get a, a, you know, get in touch with. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I actually have been listening a lot to Andrew Werberman. He's a neuroscientist um, out of uh, Stanford and he's got some amazing stuff. And I listened to a podcast on the, the Rich Roll podcast that he was on. Highly recommend it. But he just breaks down um, like they're actually doing studies on time, dude. It's phenomenal. It's like unbelievable, but studies on time and how the brain can focus on and actually we can train ourselves to slow down or speed up time by what we're focusing on. And it's just mind blowing stuff. And a lot of it is, you know, goes into the breath work that we do, the, you know, the moment by moment, the, you know, mindfulness strategies, the Wim Hof and all the that Wim Hof thing, yeah. thing. Yeah. And, but just the actual ocular nerve, the, the eyes are actually two membranes of the central nervous system that sit outside of our skull. And just, we can actually train our eyes to, to like, if we're going through a really bad struggle, like, you know, whatever, like all the things you just mentioned they like to focus on just a pinpoint in front of you for like a certain amount of time, but then force your eyes to see the whole picture, like the whole view around you, the landscape, the, the panoramic view and take a couple deep breaths and that will pass. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just amazing stuff. When you start to realize these little tricks that you can do to get through things other than a beer, a line of Coke, masturbation, punch the wall, whatever. But punch your wife, punch. Your- I was going to say that, but I'll let you say that. That's also, well, I'll say it because <laughs> I've, I've, I've prosecuted and defended that, and yeah. you know, and it's true. I mean, it's it is. It's just amazing that like this, and I actually say this too shall pass every time. Um, my wife and I end up having to deal with another tragedy that a friend is going through, and we're like, wow, this too shall pass, and. The interesting thing for me, now knowing all these things about, you know, how we can focus and change our focus and change what we view and it can, you know, make things that we're feeling by the way we breathe change, recognizing that in TI, in the the ministry, what has been so beneficial is when you get a guy that has got three years clean and then the new guy comes in and about six months, he's like, man, you don't understand. I just love women. I need to be, I need companionship or whatever. He can look at this other guy and this other guy can be like, dude, you don't have any idea what you want or need right now. It's a time thing. It's not a knowledge thing. The wisdom comes in the time that we let ourselves sit still. Mm -hmm. It's about really about letting yourself be in a position of receiving what's coming your way. Yeah. And so, like you said, you mentioned the phone call, like I needed to be in a position to receive that call. But we're so used to, especially in addiction, go, 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 got to get the next thing, get the next thing. 
that's, you know, personally, I, I believe in community and why us as men need to be in life together. But that actually is only part of the secret. The secret that I don't tell people is it takes three years for the brain to actually recover from everything that we've done to it. So it's three years before you're making good decisions, which is why I feel like any recovery place that's that is 12 months or this, 60, yeah. yeah, or especially the ones that are $90,000 for 30 days is a joke. Because no one that's been a hardcore addict is going to be able to do it after six months. Not being transformed, that's a three-year process. And you need to be in a position to receive the wisdom that you need to learn in order to be a different person. I know for a fact right now that I could talk to you for 10 more hours, but I'm <laughs> going to hopefully say that this is a to-be-continued conversation. Absolutely. I'd love to have you come in periodically and talk about this stuff yeah. as much as I feel like I you need to write me a, a bill, you know? <laughs> but, uh, I just, again, love what you're doing. It's such an amazing thing, what you're doing. I hope that we can work with each other yeah, absolutely. moving forward. And, uh, you know, if, if you saved Chris Bryant for me, then everybody else who loves him. <laughs> and I'm sure there's been a bunch of other Chris Bryant's who have passed yeah. through your doors and, you know, that's just, really amazing so thank you so much for coming by yeah, i really appreciate absolutely. it i'm glad to have met you i'm glad to have had you on the show hopefully you'll come back and do it we can have more of these discussions yeah i do want to mention i'm actually in the middle of writing a book um yes thank you because i want how can people yeah the the book's coming out in um well the manuscript will be done in december and then we're we're hoping to have it come out in the beginning of the year I'm really excited about that. And then also, you know, Sober Truth Project, you can come and check us out, SoberTruthProject.org, or of course, TimothyInitiative.org. And both organizations, like I said earlier in our conversation, there is not a lot of people that want to give to organizations, period, let alone organizations that do the type of work that we do. So we're always looking for people that want to come along and help. Let me ask you this question, actually. I, I yeah. meant to ask it to you before, but you... Um luckily thought of it before you walked out. Um, there's at least two different people that are in my direct sphere of influence right now who are struggling. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what advice to give to the families of these people who, you know, they're showing up in the middle of the night asking for money or calling, hey, you know, I just got in a fight, you know. And, you know, I've had this conversation with Chris, but, you know, if, if someone has a family member that's struggling with an addiction what is it that they can do? Is it is it just disconnecting and letting them kind of fall? Is it taking them somewhere and getting them in a program? You know, and, and obviously, I, again, I know there's not one answer, but right. uh, both these people in the situation that I'm talking about seem as though they're circling the drain and getting pretty close to the bottom. And one of the hardest things that I've seen for the family to do is to say, not not um what's enable them or whatever the thing is so right. what's what's your advice there sure. or how do you tackle that well i mean i think you obviously already know this but every single person is different and addiction you know attacks people differently so there isn't one golden answer but one place that a person can begin is they can reach out to us um on our you know website and we'll get back to you and you know we will talk to you about men women old young children it doesn't matter we you know we might not be able to help them but we are really equipped with a lot of the resources that are out there uh you may not like what we say but we'll give you the best advice that we can okay well so there you go uh hopefully listening to this if if nothing else reach out to the Timothy initiative reach out to George and if he can't 
help you specifically, he can probably get you in touch with those who can. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And anything that I can do to help, please let me know. And anything that I can promote on the show, please let me know. And your book, when it comes out, please let me know. Have you back on. We'll talk about that. Awesome. All right. You have a nice weekend. Yeah, you too.